Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 415th episode of Constructed Criticism. I'm joined by Abe Stein. That's me. And Spencer Howell. I really wish that we would not acquire competitive companies in such a small market as MTG. Listen, we're going to keep buying up all the podcasts and running them on the network. That's clear what Spencer's Hold mentioning. Hold time out. Uh, Just be clear. <laughs> to the two people who have been like, hey, if I do this, will you put it on your network? The answer is yes. This is not a monopoly. I just love you too, and I think you're great. We're a conglomerate. That's right. No, but <laughs> <laughs> jokes aside, I don't know. I, I, I surprised y'all with that intro. You know, normally I do a whole thing, but I realized when I was thinking about the show that it doesn't do anything for a new listener. They don't know whose voice is who unless I introduce you one at a time. So going forward, get ready. I'm going to probably ask you a question about something, and then you're going to answer it. That way they hear your voice. And then right here on the show, I'm telling you this now, so that it has to happen, and it has to be my way, because I'm a narcissist dictator. But you know who it's not a narcissist dictator? Agrodex. That joke didn't land as well as I was hoping it would. I got a couple of... Listen, sometimes you go for a joke and you miss. That's okay. Just like sometimes you play the red deck and you don't draw your burn spell. But we're going to talk all about that after doing Always Improving today. Abe, you're up first for Always Improving. This week... I actually had the chance to play a Pioneer Challenge for the first time in a long time. As you might know if you're a regular listener, I'm a big Pioneer guy. Been a stan for a while. Love to see the glow up. I'm pretty sure that I'm the Pioneer guy of this podcast, Abe, and you're just trying to take my glory. Okay, you can feel that way. If you can't <laughs> love me on my niv that you don't deserve me on my arc light. Nobody yeah. loves you at your niv for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, so I had a really interesting game. I was playing for top eight of the challenge on Saturday. I was playing red, black, mid range against Arclight Phoenix. And I had successfully like narrowed down my opponent. They were almost out of cards. They had no Jaces in their deck. I was like playing the game to deck them. Um, and I got in this position where my opponent had a ledger shredder and one card in their library. The ledger shredder couldn't attack me for lethal. They could only cast one spell. They had like one card in hand that I knew was treasure cruise and the card on top. And I wound up losing this game because I became so fixated on trying to win, to win the game by like cracking blood tokens and using mana to try to find two spells to cast in turn, rather than leaving up mana to just block as many possible ways to interact with the blocker my opponent had for a Hall of Storm Giants that was threatening lethal. So I was really frustrated with myself after this because I had played the entire game, like answered two Jaces. I played the entirety of the game around this idea of whittling them out of resources. I was never really in a spot to apply good pressure. I never really was the aggressor. I was kind of on the back foot, trying to play as many answers as possible. Run my opponent out of Arclight Phoenixes. They had cast multiple cruises that game. They were just up a lot of cards. So I was really playing defense, but I knew that by playing defense, because how many cards into their library they were, I could have a chance to deck them. And as I came down to the wire, I just didn't ask myself the question, like, what am I doing there? What is it I'm trying to do in that game? And I think had I asked myself that question of, okay, I don't need to focus on winning. Winning will happen because I have run them out of resources. I've done it. They only have one draw step left, and I can survive this one turn. I shouldn't be thinking about making them draw a card with Ledger Shredder so they lose the next turn. I just need to worry about making the two draw steps happen. And because I didn't do that, I wound up losing that game and then ultimately losing the match in the following game. Uh, and missing top eight. And it was just a really good reminder to be asking yourself the right questions and thinking about the game in the right framework consistently 
through the game because I found that when I let myself get sidetracked on the fact that I could win sooner by by forcing this ledger shredder trigger, trigger forcing them to draw a card and get one step closer to milling themselves out, I lost sight of what I had played the entire game to do, and that opened up this window for them to to win a game that I had won. So it was just a really good reminder to be better about that and to make all of my plays consistent and all of my plans consistent so that I don't make mistakes like that. Again, especially in a format like Pioneer where the cards are kind of lower power than formats like Modern and you get bailed out a lot less and it's really important to make sure you're playing as well as you can to get those edges. I actually have a question. So it's not really those improving mode, but I want to add on to what you just said. And I want to talk about Sokoza and Crucible from Neon Dynasty. Because I have a question. And that this this is really directed at you, Mason. I have seen this card in a lot of lists because of you for four color. And I want to understand like a resources battle. I have never myself used this card as two twos or as one ones, sorry. And I have never seen it used as that. And I'm curious why it is this land over other things, because I think it falls into what Abe said, which is like this understanding resources thing, like playing your cards to both their maximum and understand the resources that you have. And and the only reason that I brought it up is because of what Abe just said about knowing where your deck is at versus your opponent's deck and knowing what your lands are at, right? Like, I have a really hard time playing the four-color deck and understanding whether or not I'm supposed to grab a Triumph compared to leave it in my deck for a draw later. Because this was really common okay. in, like, the Volokit decks where you might leave one of your draws in your deck. Whereas in this deck, it doesn't seem that common. And for the Sozakan, it's like, I've literally never seen it happen. Just to confirm, because I, I think it maybe broke up on my end a little. For your Sokinzen question, you're saying why Sokinzen over a different utility land? Over Is that correct? any land. Okay, yeah, sure. I, I can I can cover both these things. So let's. I'm going to start backwards, because I think the first one's easier to cover. Uh, and we'll tie a little bit into this. So... When it comes to triumphs, specifically in Money Pile, and you might be listening and thinking, wow, what, what am I supposed to be doing with these triumphs? Just like Spencer, it's very confusing. Typically, I default to this heuristic. There will be times where things are different, and you should adjust accordingly. But this is the heuristic I would tell you to follow, is that if getting the triumph early is going to let you curve out your draw optimally, then you should grab the triumph early. And if your mana is good enough for the first five turns of the game, I would leave the triumph in my deck. If I have Renin Six... And if it is close, I just grab the Triumph. I basically want the Triumphs in my deck as easy uh, lands to be able to fetch up and get on turns where I need to be developing my mana. And then along those same lines, in case you're curious, you should grab Jeskai Triumph, Breeding Pool, Forest as your first three lands. If you're unsure, that changes sometimes. But if you have those three in that order, you can cast all your spells in the early turns. I derailed your always improving. Do you see how that fit in, Abe? I think it's important all the time to like know what it is you're playing to do with all the tools in your deck and how they play into your cohesive game plans. And like, you know, for me, knowing in that match I was talking about, knowing um, that my plan had to be about attritioning out like the Arclight Phoenixes, their recursive threats about, you know, what tools I had to fight against the Jaces that they had. That's that on that when it comes to the Triumphs. Then when it comes to Sokinzon, 
it is specifically kind of a few factors, but the first factor to consider is that we're in a Ragavan format. Tokens on is a counter spell to Ragavan. So if your opponent tries to dash Ragavan into you, you can uh, channel a Sokens on if you held up mana, and that way you always kill the Ragavan. It requires them to have two kill spells in order to clear the tokens, and generally that's often a favorable advantage for you. It's also the best thing to be picking up with Renin 6 when it comes to clogging up the board. Uh, Sokens on just gets the board like kind of awkward for them to be attacking. It's also one that actually turns the tide on pressuring your opponent. So if you're in a top deck war, Sokens on is something that actually starts attacking. And then incongruity with that, it also pressures Planeswalkers. And it's a way to get some pressure on the board and start hitting them and then picking up with your Renin 6. I was a little lower on Sokens on at first, but after getting to really play with it, I have won a bunch of games just because two blockers is really big, especially in the Ragaman format when it is such a pivotal card for you to have to answer in the early turns. So it's been really, really big in that experience. And honestly, just with how games play out as well. And that effect has a low replacement rate in modern. I actually think that what you said about the Renin 6 interaction really ties into what Abe was talking about. Understand where you're at in the game. And the Renin 6 play actually does that exactly. I had not thought of that. So that was a good answer. I'll just say this since we've kind of went on a long journey here. I'll pick where Abe was. I, I really like that, Abe. I, I think it's so important to be playing your games out in a logical way, in a way that like kind of makes sense, even if you're maybe in the wrong space, right? Like maybe you should have been playing it less uh, that way and more aggressively or something, right? Maybe that's the optimal thing. But having a coherent plan and then double checking that later is such a great way to learn and improve. And it's such a it's so much better than just doing things at random. You know, we talk so much with the show back in the old day that plan beats no plan. And uh, it's it's a great moment. I'm sorry it didn't quite work out yeah. for you, but a nice little, you know, check in for next time. I'm up next on always improving. And so mine is an interesting moment from a coaching session where I was watching a replay with somebody who was playing Spirits, and we had this really kind of cool moment happen where their their hand was super simple, so it's very easy to track. It's three Curious Obsessions, two lands, a 1-1 Spirit, and a Shacklegeist. If you don't know Shacklegeist, does tap two Spirits, tap a creature. And we played our 1-1 Spirit on one, right? Our opponent played land, land or elf. It was a Temple Garden to be exact. And then it was our turn, and we paused the replay, and I asked them, so what do you want to do? And then there was some discussion about maybe one uh, Curious Obsession versus two Curious Obsessions for things like Gaslight Snare and other one-drops, and just like how much mana I want to commit to this thing right now. And then I asked him, are there any other plays you see that are really tempting to you right now? And uh, he goes, no, that's about it. And so I got to bring up how Shackle Guys can tap the Elf in the upkeep and allow us to build more creatures on board, put more Curious Obsessions on stuff, and swing and not be so all-committed, and... We got to have a cool little moment about talking about, like, what can your opponent be doing, right? If they play Templar Guardian, Land or Elf, what's the worst thing that can happen to us, right? I'm sure if I ask Spencer here, what do you think is the worst thing that can happen to you in Pioneer off, lane, off of that, that start? It's either Dryad. It's Pioneer for what's worse. Dryad still seems bad. Sure, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you thought it was no, Dryad, for a second. No, Dryad seems bad in both. <laughs> I'm really worried about anything that pressures me that allows them to resolve a company for what it's worth. I also think that, mm-hmm. like, Angels is, like, pretty big of a problem in this specific setup. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of turn two Angels, or especially Company Angels. Yeah, that that would be my biggest concern. Yeah, I'd be worried about Reflector yeah, like, Mage and, like, the Company decks, and that's usually what the multicolored Llanowar Elf yeah, decks are. Exactly. Or at least the green-white Llanowar decks are, are Company decks. Their three drops are the reason they're playing their deck, 
and that's why they play collect company because they want to get as many three drops as possible. So three, it's nine the, that, it the really three drop that exiles your own stuff too. The human, the one, the new one. I played against. Oh, Lagrelia. Yeah. What is it called? Lagrelia. Yeah, that thing actually messed me up on an explorer the other day, where like they exiled their elf, which didn't even matter because it wasn't a human, but it was so good that they exiled it that it was kind of nuts. So I would worry about company decks on the start. For what it's worth, Mason. Yeah, just just there are so many high impact three plays, right? Like A brought up creatures with high impact. Spencer brought up like an angel to block, and then now our curious obsession creature is going to be like you know dying to attack into it for not lose something, right? Or we're gonna have to draw another spirit. And also, what if they play something like a love struck beast or an archon of Amirius and that allows them to sneak a collected company in? Uh, those are all cards that are terrible, and so we got to have that really cool moment of doing this, and it's a great always improving moment um, because it shows looking outside the box because. When I first saw the hand, I did not consider, and our opponent played Lanterwolf, I didn't consider it until we got to our draw step, which we drew another land. And I was like, oh, wait, actually, tapping that elf is probably really good, especially because with the third land, we just put all these obsessions on, or some of them, you know, and then hit them. And uh, that sort of thing, I think, think, remembering that your cards work in lots of different ways and interact with other cards in lots of different ways is a really important thing. Can we, sorry, I don't want to go too deep on always improving, but can we actually talk about Kyrips that, Curious obsession and this spirit because it it might mess mm-hmm. people up if they don't do it right. What do you? Uh, what is? How does curious obsession read? Oh, curious obsession is an 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 aura that you put on a creature and it's plus one plus one and it says if this creature deals combat damage to a player, draw a card and then if you do not attack this turn, this aura falls off. So you can send a creature that is not the curious obsessed creature uh, to attack and it meets the requirements. But uh, typically, it is the creature with the obsession attacking. But in theory, if your opponent had a blocker in the way, you might, let's say, attack with a creature that will bump heads with it, or one that will die in order to keep the curious obsessed creature around. Yeah, the only reason I brought that up is because of the way that you talked about it, which was, you could do both, right? Like, it, it's pretty easy to draw one drop or whatever in that spirit's deck to make just all of this work. I think that Bolt the Elf applies to Elves in, in Pioneer. Uh, Spencer, what's up for your always improving moment? Mine's a little different than your guys'. I have been on nostalgia road uh, the last couple weeks. We had Quentin Pierce, former ghost of the show, win the Modern Challenge. We had the Witch Cling lose a winning in for top eight of the Legacy Challenge. And I was online with both of them as we were talking about this. In doing that, I thought about episode 13 of this podcast. What are we on now, Abe? It's one four fifteen. Four fifteen. Yeah. So we're four hundred and two episodes beyond this, where we had John Finkel on, and John Finkel's number one piece of magic advice is surround yourself with people better than you. I want to be clear that John Finkel said this. John Finkel was like, "Yo, Sam Black is a better deck builder than me. Yo, Team SCG has Reduke." Sam Black. I don't know who else was on the team at the time that we had him on the podcast, but like... Fred Nelson. Fred Nelson, standard player, right? He was so endearing of those who, at this time of the podcast, like, John Fingal had not played Magic and then went on to uh, Abe Nose, because he was like a total grinder at this time, like, top eight's like three Pro Tours in four. Out of nowhere. And Yeah, he just came back and, and reached 16 top eights. Yeah. 
think top sixteen like eight pro tours in a in a row on that team. Something like that. And it was unreal. And he was like, "No, listen, I'm John Finkel, but like, here's what Sam did for me with in Pro Tour Aviston Restored. Here's what Brad did with for me at this Pro Tour, and it was unreal. And the reason that it was so nostalgic for me, and the reason I was thinking about it, was like one of the number one questions that I get from people is, "How do you build a playtest team? How do you build these things?" And it's hard, guys. Like you literally have to go walk up to somebody and be like, "Hey, I really respect your game, and I would like to work with you." And as somebody who has worked on GP teams, Pro Tour teams, worked with some of the best players in the world myself. This is a hard concept. Like, you have to literally say, hey, I respect your game and I want to do this. And it goes both ways. It has to be players that you think are up and coming. It has to be players that you think are better than you. And in addition to that, I think that elevating others is the other part of this. This weekend, I'm going to go real deep because Quinn is actually coming on the podcast next week to talk about his challenge win and the fact that he's won two challenges in the last, like, two months. A huge part of this is elevating others and it, uh, the ability to just. There were multiple times in the finals. Quinn asked us no questions until he got to the finals. He started asking us questions. And Matt and I were just like, dude, like, you've done this. It, it's kind of similar to how PTQs happened back in the day where we were in PTQs together and people were winning online PTQs where it was like, you've gotten this far because you're in the zone and I don't want to disrupt your zone. And if you're going to elevate others, elevate them in a positive way. Don't tear them down. What really happens in Magic is we think that telling people where they were wrong is where they're going to improve. Whereas I actually think that telling people where they were right helps them a lot too. And this weekend really solidified that for me. I had a game where I was watching Quentin in top four of the challenge this weekend where I was like, hey, I didn't say anything, but I thought you played that extremely well. And I, I think that we need to do better, not just as like me, Spencer, Mason, or Abe. I don't know your guys' friendships with your Magic playing friends. But like, I think our Discord is doing a really good job of this, by the way. I want to shout them out. That they are finding people in of similar mindsets with similar goals. They're teaming up and just talking about plays. I don't know about YouTube, but I've jumped in on a few of those calls where they are not only questioning each other, but being like, they're not just saying, I think that's wrong. They're saying, hey, why do you think that? And I think that's the elevating other piece. It's not just about finding the person that has a similar goal to you. It's about helping and lifting them up. And that was my learning from both our Discord and from the challenges this weekend. Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of follow up on what you said there. I think it's really important to remember, and, and I think that most Magic players, if, if you've played a Magic tournament, you've punted a game, or you've like done something wrong, we're always trying to look for, as Magic players, in a game, in the moment, you're thinking about the things that you could have done better, and it's very easy to, especially when you're thinking about how you could have done better, how you could have improved, to lose sight of the things you did correctly, and when you bring the energy of, I think that, yes, you're right, maybe you did make a mistake here and it could have been better, you know, and you're learning from that. But also, 
don't lose sight of the fact that you did all of these things right. You know, like if, if I were to only look at the match that I played for top eight of the Pioneer Challenge that I brought up as my always improving moment this week, if I had only focused on this one last turn where I, you know, lost sight of, of everything and threw the whole game away, if I had only thought about that as my takeaway from my tournament, I would be in a miserable place right now. I'd be like, oh my God, I threw the whole tournament. I was going to make top eight and then I didn't because I'm dumb. And it's like, no, I played really, really well for seven rounds, made a lot of really good plays to put myself in position to win this game that was really strange and really off the wall. And to do that was really good. And, and if I didn't have that ability to recognize it myself, and a lot of people don't have the ability in the moment to think about it, if you can bring that to the people around you, that is huge. And I think it's really important to do when you're working with people and to lift each other up, not only in the way that you're helping each other grow as players, but helping each other, you know, withstand the mental pressure you put on yourself to improve by giving reminders of the positives. I think that was really, really, really good observation, Spencer. It's important to remember that the goal is to always be improving and always doing things better. But if you can't remember the good things and you can't point that out in your friends what's the point in doing the improving i'm gonna add on to this i'm sorry to bring in smash this has been like the number one thing for me and matt this month in smash we've been super complimentary of each other i switched to a samus main again uh mason old school might remember this but like i'm a samus man again in smash uh matt is a a zero samus main i'm like my secondary is really good against Matt. And one of the things that we're talking about is like, Matt was complimenting me on my Zares, for example, which is like a really big part of Samus's kit this week. And the number of times where I have maybe sequenced spells correctly in Magic where nobody noticed it and I probably discounted it, whereas the number of times where my teammate looked at me and said, hey, you did this there, which gave you good spacing options, which is basically, for what it's worth, I know this is a weird comparison, comparison, but, like, the same thing as spacing and Smash, it's pretty huge. Telling your friend that they sequence something correctly is, like, really good validation. I believe that we as humans crave validation. And just pretending like we don't and that, like, it's bad to crave that validation is probably just going against human nature. In my opinion, it's been pretty huge for me. I think that there was one moment in the top eight of this tournament that Quentin won where Matt and I said, Hey, I think we both thought you sequenced this wrong. It didn't matter. You won, but like, here's where it was an improving moment. And that's the way to do. I was improving. It's after the fact. And we have some housekeeping to take care of, Spencer. Oh, yeah. First of all, we want to talk about Game Ridley High. The place where dreams become a reality. My dreams become a reality. And if you are a fan of the Constructor Criticism YouTube channel, maybe your dreams too. We, I, myself, and hopefully a couple of my co-hosts throughout the next year or so, will be doing 100% of the 1k plus events that game girdly high offers um as far as coverage we'll do, be doing paper events 
we'll be trying to be hashtag always improving as we do that. Um, and this is a reality, a dream becoming a reality for me. They're going to pay me for it. They're going to support it. It's going to be super awesome. If you're a patron of the show, there's a code in the Discord. Become a patron of $5 or more, you get access to the code. It's in the Discord. And then, if you're not a patron, you still want to support the show, check the show notes. There's a link in the show notes for a reference code that still helps the show. So thank you. To the literal best store, an amazing sponsor for us. They're doing the RCQs. You guys cool if I just plug their RCQ? Yeah, go go hard. Dude, have you, I don't know what your guys' RCQs look like, but here's what our sponsor is doing. Well, I live in Utah. That's where this sponsor is. They are giving a free flight and hotel plus cash to first place of their RCQ to Atlanta. That's great. Plus, it's a 2K event. That's nice. And, real talk, the CCMTG Open, sponsored by them. 81322, Pioneer and MTGO. You like what they're doing? Cool. First place, $200 plus a trophy. Second place, $100 to game grid. Third and fourth, $50, $25, $10 entry. Additional prices across the board for everything. But if you're a patron of $10 or more, Mason, what do you get? Free entry. <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying, like, I can't use MTGO. How do I do this? Mason, how do they do it? They go on over to manitraders.com and use code USEME to get 10% off your first two months. Manitraders sponsors me, and that's the code, baby. So go use that. Bigger number, better person. Speaking of things to use, you might want to use this episode if you're kind of wanting to figure out the archetype. So we're doing another archetype discussion episode, this time on aggro decks. And I kind of want to start off with, like, what is aggro and the styles? And Abe, what are, like, the styles of aggro and what is aggro? I think to most people, aggro decks are, are pretty self-explanatory. To most of what people, when you start playing Magic, do, you put some creatures in play, you attack, try to kill the opponent. Uh, but when you really get into the nitty-gritty of it, when it comes to the aggro decks, I think that there's kind of two different axes on which aggro decks are built. And that is going wide versus going tall and going short versus going long. So when I say going wide, that's pretty self-explanatory. You're putting a lot of different creatures in play. Your board is very wide and full of stuff. And you're usually trying to do it very quickly so that your opponent can't keep pace with you and you're getting a lot of good combats in. You're killing the opponent quickly with your many creatures. As opposed to going tall where maybe you play Something like a uh, Steel Leaf Champion or a uh, Siege Rhino right after an Anafenza, where you're just beating down the opponent with like bigger things, or you're using auras or pump spells like Become Immense or like, uh, like Groundswell to make your creatures larger and stacking resources onto your creatures, investing in your creatures to have them do the work for you. Those are kind of the two main main principles of how aggro decks like work in the way they're trying to beat people and the other main component of aggro decks going into short and long is the way that they they choose to interact so when i say going short versus going long most games for aggro decks in your ideal world you're trying to end the game very quickly but what that means can be relative to the format and relative to what you have access to right so in a deck that's going short 
you might be playing a deck that's trying to, you know, you have a lot of burn spells, a lot of ways to close the game, regardless of what happens after a certain point. Um, so what you're really focused on doing is investing mana in the early turns in and dealing a lot of damage to the opponent very quickly, not really caring about the drawbacks of some of the cards you're playing, because once your opponent can start interacting with you, it doesn't matter anymore. You've done enough damage, you can close the game out somewhere. As opposed to a deck that's going long, like a mono-blue spirits deck, or uh, you know a mono-black aggro deck, where you're going to need more time because your deck is a little slower, so you're going to play more cards like Thoughtseize or like Counter Magic to disrupt your opponent to keep them from stopping you or from from getting to where they need to be so you're slower like slower gold fishing block you're slower you're weaker smaller creatures than maybe the powerhouses of green or red those creatures can just have enough time to to end the game or have enough combats yeah so so when we're talking about these decks and talking about the different kinds of aggro decks from white weenie to mono red burn to Mono green stompy. Think about where they fall on those two axes, kind of like a like a matrix of sorts. And that's really the different styles when you break down the aggro deck to its core. I don't know how you feel about that, Mason. And that's a great way to kind of frame it and look at it, what Abe just mentioned there. And having that sort of frame of reference is going to guide you and let you kind of know where we're coming from with all of this going forward. Uh, with our conversation about aggro, and kind of gives you a graph of the different styles of aggro decks and what they're trying to do, and sort of a, like a high in one area, you know, but maybe lower another, etc. Spencer, let's talk about the keys to aggro, though. And I think the first one that's so obvious is being proactive. And what does that kind of mean to you? And how would you kind of start understanding it from there? I don't know if you guys agree, but like in the last like five years of magic, being proactive became a lot more important. I was a huge proponent, if you know me historically, of ramp decks because it asked questions in a very specific way. Whereas I think that just asking questions became a lot better. And I think that's because creatures have gotten better. And so aggressively slanted decks have gotten better. And I often ask myself, why not to be the one asking questions? You know, I've been Spencer the control player. I've been Spencer the ramp player. I've been Spencer the mid-range player. I don't think local players know Spencer of the arena era, which was Spencer the mono-red player, but, like, of the last few years, we, we asked ourselves, why not, you know, to quote Hillary Duff, take a crazy chance and just figure out why not ask, do, do you have an answer for this one-mana creature? Okay, do you have an answer for this two-mana creature? This three-mana creature? These two two-mana creatures? And it's really weird because, like, it's not like Goblin Guide wasn't good. It's not like they do it so well now. And I'll I'll kind of summarize with this. There were a lot of good white and green one-drops really quickly all of a sudden. And so white and green became the best standard decks. All of a sudden, we have a bunch of red good one-drops after Neon Dynasty. And now there's, like, this whole world in which it's possible that Boros Aggro is the best deck in standard. That's not to take away from Misplaced Ginger, who has been crushing it, in my opinion, with one of the best discard spells in history. We have to ask ourselves the question, which is like, is asking the question better than presenting the answer? I think that's really interesting to think about, Spencer. I think it's really important when you talk about aggro decks to remember that the real thing that 
brings down the aggro deck that balances out the fact that sometimes the questions are a lot stronger than the answers is that when you have an answer, you know when to answer a question, right? Uh, the, the question presents itself, you provide an answer. That's a very uh, simple kind of play pattern to be in. Our last it can be a really episode, hard way. for what it's worth, Abe, was the flowchart of like blue-white X control, right? Where it was a flowchart deck, right? Do I answer this thing? And the thing that you're talking about right now, what does it do? It, it breaks the flowchart. Yeah, exactly. And so, so when you think about aggressive decks and why it is that, you know, why maybe you wouldn't want to present the answers or, or present the questions or why you would, the thing that's good about presenting the questions is there's no wrong question. That's true in life. That's true in magic. There's no wrong question. You just have to ask it at the right time. Knowing the right questions to ask to beat the answers that becomes a lot of the game of aggro. So yeah, I think that's that's really important to keep in mind when you're thinking about aggro. I don't remember what episode. I don't think it was the control episode. You actually talked about this, Abe, on an episode where we covered standard, where you asked, what are the threats and what are the answers that answer them, right? And I think that this is a huge part of understanding the being proactive part. Mason, you can probably talk about this better than I can, but like, Vanishing versus like or was a huge answer in standard. And now I think Derek is like one of your good friends. He's only having one in his list. Yeah, the way that things kind of work is and specifically more so the smaller the pool is, right? There's a limited number of options for answering things, and the decks will build themselves in a way to try and beat that, and that's how they become successful. So like, for example, maybe there's a gold card that isn't as strong as a monocolor card. So, like, there might be a, a gold creature that's weaker than Tenacious Underdog in the one-to-one, but Vanishing Verse is a huge role player in the format uh, and a huge thing that people can turn to, so you play the multicolored creature. And that leads to things like black-white decks moving away from Vanishing Verse and towards things like Infernal Grasp, and then that's why things move, too, where they start playing cards that Infernal Grasp can't target. And that's kind of the song and dance. We've seen this in Standard before where people start playing creatures that look really bad in the abstract of what magic is. But in the context of the format they're in, they're actually very good. And that's because cards exist in a va- uh, in context. They don't exist in a vacuum. And so we've seen aggro decks throughout history play weird-looking things and objectively weak things. But in the context of the cards they were playing against, they were very strong and effective at null- nullifying those cards. I think it's really important to recognize that and how understanding how that kind of cat and mouse game of questions and answers works in how it can help you dictate the pace of the game as the aggressive player. I think that when you're playing a deck that's trying to be proactive, making sure that your opponent can't easily and cleanly answer the things you're doing and and making sure that you're presenting threats forward that are going to be difficult for your opponent to deal with is how you start to snowball the game into a place where someone whose deck is more reactive and trying to answer what you're doing isn't able to successfully do that and therefore loses the game. One of the questions that I have for you, because you're the next on this segment, this week, Ginger played one Vanishing Verse. Two weeks ago, he played three, where he won the challenge. But in both of them, he played three Dread Feud and, like, a bunch of other discard, like, two uh, Palika 
predation. And one of the things that you have in the show notes is just talking about threats versus in these aggro decks with discard. Something that often comes up in dictating the pace, something I like to think about a lot when I'm playing a deck that's trying to be a practical board. It comes up a lot with Hammer, it comes up a lot just in general in Magic, is uh, kind of knowing when you're being the aggressor, how to use your interactive spells, and when you're being the answer deck, how to use your answer spells. Generally, when you're the aggressor, if you have a choice between playing a card that's going to meaningfully increase your clock by a lot, right? If I could on turn two cast Luminarch Aspirant or Infernal Grasp on your creature, I probably want to play Luminarch Aspirant before casting an interactive spell because this Luminarch Aspirant is going to make it so that I'm moving my game plan forward while I'm interacting with you because I have a creature in play, it's dealing more damage, it's growing my creatures. Is something really important to remember about the way that you try to dictate the pace of the game and move the game the way that you want it to move so that you're leveraging the strengths of your deck rather than, you know, a lot of people, if they see a thought season in their hand on turn one, they just want to cast it and take their opponent's best card. But it's better if you're playing a deck full of, uh, you know, black two ones for one that can't block to play out one of those two ones. Maybe even play out all of your creatures before you cast that thought season because it's more important to be applying pressure as an aggro deck than to be interacting as, as a rule of thumb. Yeah, it really kind of ties into the thing that I kind of want to talk about here. So I'm going to kind of dovetail it with, like, keeping in mind the clock. And, like, when I say clock, I don't mean the round timer. I mean the amount of turns that your pressure is giving your opponent. So if your opponent has 20 life and you have 5 damage on board, they have 4 turns. That's the clock, right? Thinking about maximizing your threat versus, like, the interaction they're having there that, like Abe was just saying, is so important to the clock and also, like, making plays that maybe are bad long-term but are good if, like, they don't have them for the clock. And that sort of walking that line is part of the reason why aggro decks are so, so hard and why they're typically just some of the more challenging and skill-testing decks in Magic is you're having to sort of factor in all of these things while also trying to proactively dictate the game, which Magic is a game that favors defenders and going second uh, when it comes to things more so than most other card games. I don't understand, Mason. Every player in the world told me that my wild Nakato Wooly Thokdar deck was the easiest deck in Magic 12 years ago. Why are you saying that it's not the same now? Do you even know those cards Magic are? Magic wasn't really a game until 2014. <laughs> yeah, I know those cards. I do, do, do the listeners who played Arena? Not a chance. <laughs> the Magic wasn't really a game until 2014 where we started sharing information, really. So it's all good. No, doesn't really straight matter. up. I think that if there's one thing, we got a really negative YouTube comment uh, just this week on our last version of this show, which was our control version. And it was really negative. And I am not the type of person. I we have our YouTube comments filtered, quote unquote, where I approve them or deny them to you know decrease bots. But I I thought that the person's comment was really interesting in that they said some pretty negative stuff about people who played quote unquote control decks. And my encouragement for this episode is that you're going to learn something in this episode, which is that aggro is actually a lot harder than you probably think. And what Mason just said, and all, honestly, what Abe just said, really contributes to that. I should say this, dictating the pace of how the game will go and sort of saying uh, habit is something that requires 
not only a more optimally built deck, but better sequencing, better attacking and blocking, things like that, which is historically I think Magic players are much worse at than they think they are. Um, it is not very easy, and that goes extremely more so as card pools get larger. It is incredibly hard. Uh, think about the legacy metagame. There aren't really aggro decks, right? There are decks that end games in other ways quickly. They don't. There aren't really aggro decks. We don't see that sort of thing. Because there are so many answer spells. Uh, and doing something like this in Pioneer, even so, which has like you know, uh, arguably a lack of answer spells, is still very, very hard and very, very tricky and challenging, and is a, a really hard puzzle to solve. Yeah, we've been talking a lot in the Discord when it comes to Pioneer about, like I know you and I, Mason, have both had different takes on the mono-red deck, specifically because it's so difficult to find the right blend, that's that secret spices of what it is that makes the perfect red deck for Pioneer. And I know that, Spencer, you've talked about mono-red being the best deck possibly in Explorer. It's the same thing, you know? It, it's so difficult to find that right mix without the information, uh, and it can't be understated. So. Tempo is something that we've kind of been alluding to a little bit here in this past part about block and stuff. That's the kind of the next part we're going to be talking about because it's one of the real strengths that aggro decks have is they're a way to use and abuse tempo. But you might be listening and be like, what is tempo? For the sake of this episode uh, and keeping kind of shorthand, tempo is a shorthand for kind of time or like turns in the game. We are going to have a whole episode on tempo and tempo decks and all that thing later. We're going to go into more detail. But for the sake of kind of conversation, if you're like, you've heard that term a bunch, you don't know, uh, it is the most nebulous term I would argue in Magic. It just means time in the game. So when you're playing these aggressive decks, very often you're trading long-term sustainability for a chance to end the game sooner. So you're trading future turns you are foregoing in order to have more chances of winning in the early turns. And that's a really hard thing to do properly, because if you think of it this way, which test is harder, Spencer? The test that has full questions of equal difficulty that are, you know, are 25% worth each in the test, or the 20 questions that are each worth 5%. Oh, definitely the 20 questions, right? Like, it's it's not close. And, and yeah. I think that what you're getting to here is, like, when do I use my one mana spells, which are all 5% questions? I think that people think a lot about aggro in the form of, like, mono-red, mono-white, mono-green. And when you look at something like, this is so boomer, and I'm so sorry, but like blue-green miracle growth, like the Lotus Cobra... I'm cutting you off on blue-green miracle Hold growth. Hold on. I know, I let Jeff Willie lock there. You get, come up with a different so, example. So blue there's a miracle current, growth. What's so, all right, blue-green miracle growth? I will growth. say right now. I will say right now. <laughs> yeah, and I think, <laughs> hold I think on, mental time. note curry on Dryad is So like, hold on, hold on. Those are two cards I'm not sure the average So hold on, I actually, right now... I don't even know. Hold on. <laughs> There's a current query on dry. I literally, to my testing team, three days ago said that blue green Delver deck that I sent Abe Stein three months ago seems really good in standard right now. The Delver. I, what is the name of the query on dry in standard? I don't even remember the name. Like See, so you're the one that messed this up, Mason, by saying I couldn't say query on dry. I want to talk about how yeah. adding Lightning Bolt yeah. to your blue deck adds reach and tempo, okay. and how adding Vapor Snag to your green deck adds, adds reach and tempo, and how adding 
So Miracle Grow was my point because I believe that right now Blue Green Delver is good in standard. That was going to be my point. But I will literally look up the card for you. I just was hoping we could find an analogy from a a sooner time period because I'm like heavily invested in magic and never heard of Miracle Grow before. You all, I'm sorry. (laughs) You're so young. Just for the sake of thinking about like the the whole tempo thing, I just. I think that there's a new Miracle Growth deck in standard. I think that. Delver plus Dragon Guard Elite in standard right now might be really great. There's a lot of reasons that I believe this. One, I think that aggressive decks are really good against the Jeskai decks of standard. And two, I believe that tempo decks are really good against the aggro decks of standard. And because of Dragon Guard Elite and because of... It doesn't have to be blue-green, by the way. I think there's a Soul-type version of this deck, too, that plays the Mage. But I I think that right now we're in this world in which the decks are very split. You have Boros, you have Mono White and Mono Green, then you have Jeskai Hanada in Standard. And I think that what happens is, in these worlds, you get this world in which something like Dragon Guard Elite, which cares a lot about tempo, cares a lot about you casting a lot of spells to disrupt your opponent, gains a lot of equity. And to me, this is where tempo decks and tempo aggro decks gain a lot of equity. Because I get to play something on one, I get to play something on two, I get to disrupt you on three, and then just blow you out for turn after turn after turn. Whereas Mason said, all those turns are not really turns, they're just time. They're just me saying, you're not going to win before I win. So I really like that. Yeah, and the trading of time and turns, right, is so important. And it really kind of comes down to a lot of ways of kind of like making positive mana exchanges, right? And Abe, why are positive mana exchanges? Like, why is it so good that I spent one mana, like on a spell pierce, to stop your soul title ultimatum? Why is that so good? I think one of those recent examples we've had of like really showing off the importance of cards that generate positive mana exchanges was actually not on the aggro side, but on the defense side when Fading Hope became this premier card in standard, especially around the Alrin's Epiphany uh, Divide by Zero format. Both of those cards really, really good at generating time, although they were being used to allow a deck to combo. Fading Hope on like an old growth troll was just so much tempo advantage and negative and like time taken away from the aggro deck that they needed that it was absolutely backbreaking. And when you inverse that and you put it to work uh, instead of from the controlling side, but from the aggressive side, you know, you see cards like Snakeskin Veil. When they trade, you know, if they cast a Heated Debate or a Demon Bolt on that Old Growth Troll and you Snakeskin Veil, now you're leveraging that same kind of advantage of they spent almost their whole turn. Three mana is a lot of mana in a game that you're only trying to play for seven turns. On any given turn, if you're only trying to play a game that's going to be around seven turns, that's going to be like half of their mana. So by taking away those opportunities, those fractions of, or whole turns of their potential development or interaction, these tempo advantages, you can leverage further the proactive things that you're doing. So if you you know, play a bunch of creatures in mono blue and put a Curious Obsession on a flyer and get in some damage, and then you spell pierce that Vraska's Contempt, on your on your curious obsession creature that's huge because they probably spent their whole turn 
casting that removal spell, all of the mana they were going to have access to for that turn, they invested, and you traded for it for less mana while putting more onto the battlefield to uh, continue pressuring your opponent. So when you have things like that, that's how you really leverage tempo into making your, your aggressive deck shine. Like that, Those are the good tempo exchanges where, despite, you know, Spellpierce not good at every stage of the game, doesn't always trade for cards, sometimes you even just tap them out with it, you're going down this card for that impact. And that impact is what you're trying to leverage with all of your other cards. There was a hot moment before Jeskai Hanada was hot where blue-red, almost LD, right? Like, it was like these Field of Ruin Cleansing Wildfire decks were hot. Where Monogreen started to adopt Tamiyo's safekeeping, where, oh my gosh, was it better by a lot than the, the current stuff that they were playing. And I think that it has carried over into the fact that I'm not going to try to push, like, blue-green aggro tempo too hard, but, like, I think there's a real world in which Tamiyo's safekeeping in standard right now both stops a lot of things that the Jeskai Hanada deck are doing, plus adds this protection against a lot of things, and according to what Aid just said, you're not just gaining, like, mana, quote-unquote, which is, like, the point of tempo, right? You might even be gaining a card. I have this come up a lot in Hammer Time, where, you know, Blacksmith skill is a perfect example of a card like this, where... You want to play something that gives that protects your thing from what's going on. They're going to try to interact with you, and you're going to try to gain tempo by shutting off that interaction. When that's something like like an expensive removal spell, like a, them hardcasting a force of vigor on my thing, that's a really big exchange to me. I'm getting a lot of mana, but it could also be that my opponent pitched a card to use Solitude, or pitched a card to use Force of Vigor to destroy my Sigarda's aid and, and my other thing, and I'm able to save one of them. And in that, my exchange is more more of their turn in the sense of the cards they have access to from their draw steps than the mana. And it's important that tempo, when you think about tempo, it's about getting sometimes their mana, sometimes their cards or their combat, but it's really just a part of a whole turn. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about tempo and we do, I get to talk about Vela summer, but you got to wait for that episode in the future. But yeah, understanding why aggro decks are really good at taking advantage of that and things like, you know, lightning strike ending a game, getting around the blockers and stuff like that, right? And just killing somebody is a huge way to gain this big advantage in the game, and the game ends, but you're sacrificing, you know, some other stuff for that. So tempo is a really big topic, and you can tell there's a lot to talk about there, and we will be doing a whole episode on that here relatively soon along this series. But the next really big thing to talk about with, with aggro, that specifically decks like Mono Red more so than the other ones do, is managing life totals. And it sounds like one of the most obvious points and stuff we're going to go over today, right? Like, managing life totals, like, duh, of course the aggro decks can be thinking about how much life they have. But I think one thing to remember is that the life total is the resource that always appears to be the most important against decks like Mono Red or Mono Green or Mono White. But there are often other things that are still playing a part in it, and you can use that fear or that greed either way, depending on what side of the table you're on, to your advantage, right? And so, Spencer, when someone, you know, makes uh, an, al an alpha attack, right? They might be trying to get you alpha back into them when they can't, when they, you know, they have some spell to stop them from losing the game. How important is it to be thinking constantly about, like, am I the beat down? 
like what's going on with life totals here? Like how important is managing that crucial number in the clock, which we've talked about? I think that managing life totals, like you said, we like talk about one side of it a lot. Right. And I think that that's normal because so often people choose not to play aggressive decks, but I think that the two sided nature of life totals, you have to understand that your opponent is playing the same game you're playing. And oftentimes, I think that Magic players have a really big weakness in this. Do they feel like they're playing against a, a computer or something that's worse than them? But what ends up happening is, like, this person is using their life total in a way that they believe benefits them. And so, you have to then say, how can I disrupt that benefit to them? That can happen in a lot of ways. Understanding how you capitalize on them using their life total as a resource probably fixes a lot of your issues with aggro decks. This is something that personally I actually had a hard time with. I think it was like 2019 I did my mono red series on our YouTube channel where I was like, I'm struggling to win with mono red. If you followed us on YouTube since, it's one of the decks that I just love now. And I think that a huge part of it was like not understanding like, hey, my opponent knows that I'm going to do X or Y. Because they played against Monoret a hundred times. Like, it's it's a common deck. It's cheap. How do we make it work? And I think that the truth is that you, as the person asking the question, you need to ask the right questions. It can't be the wrong questions. If you have the wrong questions... Your opponent's going to be like, well, that was a dumb question. I already had the answer to that. I think that's pretty important, especially when it comes to managing life totals. Yeah, knowing when to, like, the word that keeps jumping to my mind is capitalize, but, like, know when to pounce on things, right? And to, like, take advantage of them is super, super big. And, Abe, how do you sometimes, like, figure out when you're supposed to be giving up thing? Because capitalizing doesn't always mean a two-for-one, right? Sometimes that means I attack with all my creatures to get two damage in so that I can draw the card Lightning Strike and deal three to you. Like, how do you sort of manage that ebb and flow of, like, when to do these sort of things? Yeah, I think the most important things to remember, especially if you're playing, it depends on what kind of reach your deck has, and we'll get into that in the next section. But it's important to remember that when you're playing the aggro deck, your goal isn't to win with all of your creatures in play sing kumbaya together. Your goal is to win the game, period. And so sometimes it can be really worth it to just, you know, even if you don't have the lightning strike in hand, even if you don't have whatever the way that you're going to close the game is, even if you don't have that yet, to constantly play and even use your own life total as a resource to put yourself in a position to have those draws, to close the game, and also remember that by making those exchanges early, that maybe push a lot of damage, that you can leverage that damage you've already dealt, that's that's cashed in, locked in the bank, because you sacrifice that creature by attacking into something larger to get in three or four points of damage elsewhere, that then in the future, they don't have the opportunity to pressure your life total the same way because they're at a lower life total and you're still pressured. Knowing how to value a card in terms of damage, what the important numbers of, of your life total, of their life total are in a given matchup, can really, really lead you to a lot of success. Like, if you know that your deck is full of lightning bolts, it's worth almost anything to get your opponent to three. 
right? Because you have so many ways to deal three damage. So being mindful of how you can ask your opponent a difficult question of, hey, I know you want to use your life total as a resource to protect the things you have, but can you afford to spend this life? Can I afford to spend these cards and life to make you make that decision? Those are important questions to ask and be asking constantly, I think, uh, when it comes to managing life totals in an aggro deck. I think, for what it's worth, Mason, before you go into your point, that this was the thing that I was struggling with in, like, 2019, 2020, these decks. I was of the opinion of, I think, a lot of listeners where, like, these decks were easy. And then as I tried to master them, I was like, oh, hold on. Understanding my deck versus your deck is way more important than you understanding my deck. And what Abe is talking about, right? I don't know if it's like a combination. It's like a your draw versus my draw versus synergy matchup problem. It's a pretty complicated equation. And anyone who pretends like aggro decks are super simple because all you do is turn your stuff sideways probably doesn't understand that all of the games that you win where you have to not do that where you have to finagle away through the moments where your opponent did manage their life totals successfully where they did block correctly they did you know whatever if you're like i just lost because it was aggro you're you're asking yourself the wrong question what actually happened is your opponent played really well. What can I learn from that? Because aggro has the most chance for error and the most chance for success. It's not one or the other. It's both. And a lot of times playing against aggro, to borrow a, uh, a favorite of yours, Spencer, a little smash term, oftentimes the aggro deck is skill-checking the opponent in a lot of spots with the attacks that they're making, the trades they're offering, the combat that's going on. It can be really, really difficult from both sides of the table to know and especially the aggro player, do I think I'm going to get this damage? Do I expect them to block or to not block? Which of these is the outcome I expect, and which one do I want? All of that has to be things you think about. They do it like five times, yeah, right? and that's every, every combat yes. of the game that's where there's so options important. for attacking and blocking. Mason, and we're like, very difficult. we're commandeering this from you. I feel bad. But like, this happens like seven times throughout the game, right? I'm asking you a question. You decide to answer it. How you answer it dictates how I then play the next turn as the aggressive player. I, I kind of had a, a revelation that I think I knew internally, but it's kind of manifesting here and makes a lot of sense. I you know I've been talking on the podcast and doing a lot of coaching recently, and one of the things that I've really been having to drive home to a lot of people and have a lot of kind of in-depth conversations about is what Spencer talked about just a minute ago, which is not only understanding your deck and your opponent's deck, but how those two decks interact with each other and how they mesh and play against each other. And I was thinking about, like, what what is this? Why is this, like, such a hard thing for players to do? And it's probably because they haven't practiced these skills because of various things. And they don't realize that they're aggro decks and blah, blah, blah. But understanding that skill and learning that skill that aggro decks demand of you, which, you know, we talked about earlier in the podcast, right? Like, Spencer brought up Vanishing Verse being in lower numbers out of the reactive decks. Because the proactive decks have changed their threats to line up better against that card. And knowing how to build your deck, play your deck, and sequence your cards in the association with all these things is one of the most important things that you can do to capitalize on the aggro deck. 
But beyond that, it's the same for Magic in general. When I'm playing Money Pile, which is, I would argue, by all means, the antithesis of aggro, uh, I am doing the exact same things, but from my side of the table, right? I'm lining my cards up as well as possible against your cards, and I'm building my threats and my answer packages to line up as poorly as possible with what you're trying to do. Well, as poorly for you as possible, as good for me as possible. And that is like a pivotal thing. So if that's something that's kind of like eye opening to you and is kind of like shocking, might be a word like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Totally cool. You're in a company with a lot of great people and a lot of great players. That's something that a lot of people take a long time to realize. You might benefit from playing a lot more aggro decks because mastering that skill is a skill that will be applicable to all your decks going forward. And that doesn't matter if it's control, if it's aggro, if it's mid-range, even if it's combo. All those things tie in to that one skill which y'all brought up, which I think is so great. I think, though, the thing that makes the most sense, though, is, Spencer, to pass it over to you about reach. And the, like, what is reach, and why are we talking about this? If you've only been playing Magic for, like, one year, you're like, why is reach important? I'm going to tell you, and you might not even realize that it's happening to you. Because flyers are good. Well, yeah, that's why it might be weird. Because trample <laughs> and flyers count as reach. So, that being said, I think most players think of reach as, like, burn spells, right? They might think of it as lightning bolt or shock or lightning strike. You've mentioned on the podcast, right? That's not just what reach is. Reach happens in a lot of different ways. And when you play magic a lot of times, you realize that you have to find unconventional ways of getting that reach. I actually think collected company decks are really good at this. Where they get reached by pumping their creatures with collected company or adding flying damage or whatever it is. Additionally, I think that outside of burn, haste creatures, evasive creatures, along with like combat tricks, I think that um, heroic did a lot to teach people about reach. I don't know what the Heroic deck looks like in Pioneer. I've literally never played against it in Pioneer or Explorer, so I'm not going to pretend that I know. I know that one of our listeners did really well with the deck. I've never seen it. But I assume that this deck has either combat tricks or burn spells that allow it to break through. And the, that moment where you break through, whether it's with a flyer or with a trample creature, or with an ability, those are the moments where you're gaining that reach. It's not the ability reach, it's the, I'm going farther than my creature says on stats. When I think about reach, to, to kind of piggyback on what you were saying here, I think about, like, the plan C of my deck when I'm an aggro deck, right? Like, my plan A is obviously, like, I'm going to curve out, you're never going to answer my things. You're going to die. My plan B is like, okay, you answered some things, but I'm going to like, you know, I have some contingencies. My cards are good independently. They're good threats. I'll, I'll find a way through. But maybe it's kind of the plan B and the plan C, but it's what's that last thing you're doing? When I've spent all of my cards, because my cards are likely more efficient than my opponents, cheaper on mana cost, I'm trying to play the game in a very condensed way. What is the thing that I'm going to do to cross the finish line when it's close? You know, and so naturally, and one of the the easiest examples is, I'm going to lightning bolt you in the face. That's going to be my plan. I'm going to draw one. It's going to kill you. If you can't kill me, 
It's why even Gabe, it's why game, Gabe even though, didn't win the challenge this weekend, for what it's worth. If you don't answer what I'm doing, if you don't kill me, and you don't end my game, and don't have the closing speed before I can find all this burn, or like Ramanap Ruins was a classic example of this being a little too good and too easy to include, it's kind of like the aggro deck's inevitability. We talk about that a lot uh, in the context of other archetypes, talk about in control, about how if I'm drawing two cards a turn, my deck is all answers. I'm inevitably going to choke you out. I'm going to be able to have more answers than you have things to do. But this is kind of aggro's inevitability. If I'm going to present more threats than you are going to have answers. I'm going to present more problems than you could ever answer in the way of something like Legion's Landing, making a bunch of 1-1s so either we can keep racing, but I'm going to have a 1-1 lifelinker blocker that's going to make your best attacker not race anymore, and I'm going to gain a little life, or I'm going to make the board really wide, make a 1-1 every turn, and then eventually attack you with all of my creatures and get a lethal damage that way. You know, Mono Blue can have a bunch of counter spells that shut off what the opponent's trying to do, so they haven't really gotten anywhere, and then by the time they do get somewhere, a miscloak Herald is just killing the opponent, right? Uh, some creature they can't block is just too much to overcome. So there's like a lot of different ways that uh, Reach can manifest. Or like in a, in a mono black deck, having things like the Pioneer mono black deck, Blood Soaked Champion, creature that keeps on coming back, something like a Blood Ghast, or an enchantment like Demonic Embrace, which threatens that every creature I draw, assuming I have three life and a card to discard, are going to have flying and be pretty big. Those are all different forms of reach. I mean, th and there's a million examples. Aggro decks especially have always found ways to have reach. Sometimes it's a combo, like become immense team or battle rage. It's whatever your last thing is. Whatever whatever this overwhelming end game that you're trying to present is. And maybe it's not actually overwhelming. There was a time in which there was... Thragtusk was like super prevalent in standard formats. Just Google Thragtusk if you don't know what that card does. But what happened is people started playing Pacify, which is like one of the oldest magic cards in history. Just to beat this card, it became a form of reach for like black-white decks and white-red decks, where instead of having to deal with Thragtusk multiple times, they dealt with it one time. It was really powerful, and it, it did what, exactly what Abe just said. Which was, hey, there's this, like, nebulous thing that I have to deal with. I might go unconventional, right? Like, pacifism isn't, like, a top-tier magic card. But it, it answered what Abe is talking about, where, like, aggressive decks adapted. And, like, as we said, all this doesn't quite sync up. It's more like, reach can be something like lightning bolt, which is, like what people often think of, right, as like Spencer mentioned at the beginning, they can also just be the thing that allows your deck to circumvent the problem in front of you. Lightning Bolt is just an easy way to circumvent things. They die. But like Spencer mentioned, making it so Thrag Tusk doesn't present two bodies is a good way to push uh, through the damage get there. You might have something like Hedana's Climb from a couple years ago that gives the creature flying, right? And that's a way to circumvent the problem and give your deck some reach. Or maybe you have something that anthems your team, like Banalish Marshal from Standard or Thalia's Lieutenant from Pioneer and Modern. So those sort of things are ways that your deck has reach, and they're sort of just ways to get around the problem. You know, I think often people think reach is going high, but you can also reach around things to get that answer. So that is kind of the general topic with that. And when you're looking for an aggro deck, you're looking for something that's strong, maybe where you're looking to like build an aggro deck, 
make sure your deck has something that does this, you know? Uh, and there have been a lot of different examples of this. Abe did a great job going over a whole plethora of them, but that is a pivotal part of an aggro deck, typically, is having some way to circumvent problems, like blockers or big things that like stop attacking or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Let's go over some general heuristics, though, for Monterey, because I think a lot of these things are things that could be typically maybe even their own episodes or short segments of something. And these are things that are going to probably be important for you when playing the mono red decks going forward. Basically, two and a half I want to cover real quick that I think are the most important. And the first one is going to apply to all of Magic, but especially these red decks. Uh, I always say red. I don't know why. My, in my head, I just I associate the, the word aggro with the color red. But that's not true. You should be mulliganing, right? And this is especially true for decks like mono blue spirits. Just to antithesis myself right here. Like, you want a creature interaction spell where you want, like, a creature and a bunch of Curious Obsessions, right? Like, you want to be mulliganing to hands that function and do the thing. Don't keep hands with your, like, your spirit deck, your red deck, your human deck that doesn't have a functional curve or doesn't do the thing it's trying to do. That is a huge, huge weakness in decks. As a person that, like, literally owns model blue spirits and paper and has, you know, one cash with this deck, I had multiple people like, why are you mulliganing to five? I'm like, oh, this deck, like... It's basically Tron. Like, you actually have to have, like, these three pieces to win any game. So, I just want to emphasize what Mason just said. Spirits is, like, a tempo deck. But, like, in all honesty, like, Spirits might be the most aggressive deck in Pioneer. By a lot. I just want to emphasize that, like, Mason had this moment with a coaching session. Mono Blue Spirits against... Mono red as I my only losses in the history of this deck, in with within one case within M- arena within MTGO like mono red is the aggressor and you are the aggressor on the play and the control on the draw and then like you have no in between and that means you have to mulligan appropriately. This is the most important part of magic, and I think that I know that like I'm diving really deep into the heuristic here, but like it's so important with this deck. The next is sideboard less. So uh, this is typically one of those things that is a big clickbaity article title where I say sideboard less, and you read the whole thing at the end of it. I've actually told you just to be more thoughtful about your sideboarding, but. Typically, your deck needs to function and do its thing still in the same lines of mulliganing. And if you over-sideboard and bring in a bunch of cards and make your deck not a functional deck while doing this to try and counteract all these things and fight battles you can't maybe win or shouldn't be trying to fight where battles they are just way, way better than you at, you are going to lose a bunch of games because you've diluted your deck. Uh, I have a, a joke that I always tell people that if I could only allow burn players to take two cards in and out in modern their win rate would go up 20%. Because you talk to these burn players and they show you nine cards post-board. You know, and they're like, I got these rips, these palms, and these sanctifier and vex, and I was ready to go. And it's like, no, that's not a real plan. Your deck doesn't like work anymore. You're missing too, too much. So make sure you're sideboarding there the appropriate amount and not over-sideboarding. Generally speaking, less is more, especially in smaller formats or less powerful formats. And then the last sort of thing, and then I'll throw it to you too if you want to talk about this there, uh, any of these points I've made, is double-checking uh, who's the beatdown, which Spencer mentioned in the Spirits example. But a general heuristic of the aggro deck 
is that you are the one who is attacking, right? And you're the one who is dictating the pace. But sometimes you will be the one who needs to be responding to threats because there's a more aggressive deck or a more aggressive draw from your opponent, or you're playing the mirror and you need to be checking how your draw lines up with your opponents. And this is one of those outlier points that's got real, like, I'm not touching you vibes, but is important to talk about. So I wanted to put it in the heuristic section. I think something that's at the root of what you said in your first two points, I think were really, really good, Mason, is that it's important to remember that as an aggro deck, you're trying to naturally take advantage of the early turns of the game. You're not trying to set anything up, really, that's going to go, that's going to take a lot of time to set up or, or take a long time to do. You're trying to play a more condensed game. You're trying to play a smaller game than most of the other decks overall. And the smaller that your deck is, when you think about the axis and the charts that I brought up at the beginning of this, the smaller your deck is, the more that you have to be even more diligent about making sure that you're starting your clock early because it's gonna you're gonna need as much of that time as much of those combats to deal all of the damage you need to deal in a game and that's fine because when the game's small you can afford more interaction but you can't afford to stumble you need to make sure that you're getting all of those turns because you'll play more ways to generate the time the time is worthless if you're not leveraging my heuristics for how to play aggro something some things that i think are really important to to touch on is uh there's this old thing called the rule of four i don't know if you've ever heard of this mason this might this was like old wisdom passed down to me when i was a young buck which is the the heuristic very plainly that if you're playing into deck with sweepers like wrath of god or supreme verdict make sure to avoid overextending uh by making sure that every board you produce once you're producing around four or five damage, don't keep extending if it's going to be sustainable. You know, if you're playing against blue-white in Pioneer, and you know the only things they could do that are different than an answer is going to be the Wandering Emperor, making sure that every combat you're going to produce, you know, four damage, that's the kind of clock you need Mason, to close. Did you, did you? And I think it's important to think about pumping the brakes like that. Additionally, Mason, did you play against the 4-4-3 four, four, mana? Did you play against the Unearthed Creatures in Modern? Because they were really popular to start. No. So ba- basically, uh, there was a mono red deck that was probably secretly the best deck in standard, but like people didn't want to play mono red because they thought they would be bad at magic if they did that. That was Hellspark Elemental, which was a 3-1 for 2 that had Unearth 2 with Trample. The one that Abe just said, which was Hell's Thunder. Um, Ball Lightning, it was everything that everyone has tried to do with Mono Red Sack, Black Red Saxons, which is like, Mono, deal you damage, nothing happens, I gain value. This deck actually taught me a lot about Magic, because it was one of the first aggro decks that like I had in paper. The Rule of Four was really applicable there, where it made me hold my Hell's Thunders and my my other things that are coming on my graveyard and made me cast my balls lightning, made me cast my other stuff. And it made you value things. I don't know, Abe. I, I think this is like when you were coming to Magic 2, like this taught me principles of aggro decks, right? Like I'm clearly the beatdown, but additionally, I have to prioritize what this Baneslayer Angel deck is doing. 
what I take away from it now, because obviously cards are very different now, you know, that's the, the era in which I learned it, it was already kind of old knowledge. Things have only gotten more powerful since then, and Planeswalkers change things a lot, but being okay with setting a benchmark for yourself of how much damage you're producing being enough. Making sure that your clock is enough and not worrying about, you know, extending too far and then running out of resource against decks that are really relying on rats. It's kind of a specific one, but I think it's a heuristic that overall when I apply it in other ways of like, oh, I should pump the brakes here. I should think about it. I should, you know, try to get a little more out of things and not expose myself so much. I found that it's lent a lot to my aggro game to be thinking about that. The other thing that I would say is don't be afraid to go all in on something. Don't be afraid to make the play where you, you know, chump block away half your creatures and you go to two or you don't block at all and you go to one and then you're you're trying to draw something to attack back for lethal. You need to make those plays and take those risks because it's better to uh, it's better to die trying. If you have to choose between giving yourself no avenues to victory by losing a bunch of your board but taking more draw steps or having one draw or two draw steps at something that closes the game, it's much better to give yourself the opportunity to draw to win the game, even if it's incredibly unlikely, than it is to try to just play the game longer. You need to focus on how it is in every game you're playing, how it is you're going to try to win the game. This is something that comes a lot when I do hammer coaching, is thinking always about what your end game is. For hammer, the main reach mechanism is usually Ink Moth Nexus. If they answer all the stuff you have going on in play, you're trying to put a hammer on an Ink Moth Nexus and one-shot them to, to kind of close the game and, and steal it from out, out from under them. Thinking about that constantly, being like, oh, okay, I know that's how I'm going to end the game. They don't necessarily know yet, but I know that's the plan. I'm going to let myself get blown out putting a hammer on a creature despite the fact that it looks really bad so that they tap out for something or the turn that they tap out, I have a chance to draw the pure steel paladin that lets me kill. Thinking about all those things and being willing to go all in and risk the entire game on a play is a skill that's absolutely necessary to success with aggro, I feel. And so, you know, don't be afraid. of it. So what are some heuristics that uh, you have? I think Abe covered that all really well. Before I go into mine, I just want to say that one of our most popular videos on YouTube is Abe talking to me about hammer time. And I would say that if you want to learn about going wide, going big, going tall, and also understanding going everything we're talking about, just watch that video and then hire a pro coaching. Because, like, you learn about going long, going short. We only played two matches and all of this came into play. That's how great Abe was as the coach to me. This week, we were talking about decks to play in modern. And I was like, I could probably play Hammer. And a huge part of it was Abe's coaching of me. So, thank you to you, Abe. Additionally, I don't have a lot to add. I think you guys covered a lot of what I was going to say. I would say that, like, you should understand your curve. I don't think we covered Pioneer really well, where sequencing is important. So, like, Pioneer and Explorer is a really good example where you have, like, this one mana spell that, like, deals one when it ETBs and then makes a creature bigger and then, like, Flips and do a 2 2. Kumano faces Kokazon. The reason that I bring this up is that in Explorer, one of the best cards for me has actually been Bomat Courier. Doesn't see play in Pioneer. However, I lost 
basically the finals of a 1K to Bowmat Carrier. They have them in their deck. I think understanding your curve, understanding the your opponent's curve, understanding your sequencing versus your opponent's sequencing, we talked about Infernal Grasp, and where it's like a tempo play, but it's not a tempo play if you're going to take two to lose. And if you're presenting an opportunity to lose, this is huge in standard right now, for what it's worth. I'm prepared for three weeks out of this podcast, but like, Mono Red and Boros are gas. People are not prepared for that aggressive of decks. And I think that a heuristic here is you need to understand how do you sequence. If I have a thing that gives a counter versus not gives a counter versus gives a counter next turn versus deals a damage this turn, you have to decide yourself how you value these types of interactions. That's not just true in standard. That's true across the board. Understanding how I'm going to sequence my humans, my spirits, my whatever these archetypes are, they're trying to go long, trying to go wide, trying to go tall, trying to go like understanding your sequencing will be the key to you winning with these decks. This is the thing that I learned two years ago with Mono Red, is that just because I have Lightning Strike does not mean I win with Lightning Strike. I have to win because I understood where Lightning Strike wins, where Embercleave wins. It's not about the reach. It's It's not about the efficiency. It's not about the aggressiveness. It's about doing the right thing at the right time against tempo, against reach, against all of it. Maybe that's holding myself to a high standard, but, like, people love to crap on aggro decks. They are the question, and we need to respect that question. I think that's a good way to sort of wrap up this whole episode, actually. And let's go on to the Patreon question. If you want to support the show, you go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. You go to patreon.com slash ccmtg, where you can support the show. You know, one of the benefits of being a patron is you get to ask questions on the show like this one. You also get access to Discord, like Spencer and Abe mentioned earlier on the show. A lot of people have been hanging out in there and testing together, so that's a great place to do that. Also, if you're a $10 entry, you get entry to the Pioneer thing for free anyways. So if you're planning to do that, you might as well get in there and at least know what your competition is going to be playing because they'll be talking. There you go. Get edging into each other. But you might also want to ask a question like this one on the show. Mikey says, what do you do when everyone in your LGS complains about the deck you're playing? I've seen to have not cared, but people aren't coming out because they don't want to play against me. And it's been said on multiple occasions. So we have had a conversation with Mikey in the discord about this. Um, and so I'm going to like just shorthand all of y'all. We asked kind of Mikey like, Hey, are you being a dick about it? And Mikey was like, no. Like, I don't think I am, and other people have said I'm not. And so that that is the first thing, right? Like, that's kind of like, like if, you, if you're listening to the podcast and this is a similar thing to you, that's my first question to you is like, are you being a bully or a mean person? Because, like, that might be the problem, might not be your dick. If that's not the case, that's on them, and all you can do is be nice and talk to them about it and be constructive, you know? In theory, right, like, you could probably teach them something. I think that's happened at my LGS is, like, people have played against Sunny Pile a lot. And a lot of my Merktide players that are, like, at my LGS, who are, like, the stronger people, are much better at playing against Money Pile than 
people who play Merchat all the time. And part of that is like they get to play against me on Money Pile all the time, and then we talk about it afterwards. So it's really a potential learning moment for them, but don't force on them if they don't want to. It's really a thing that's like, as long as you're not causing it outside of the game and they just have a frustration with the deck, that's ultimately between them, Watsy, and God. So This is a hard question. I'm going to separate myself from Mason and April for a second, where there's a huge percentage of the magic community, and I, I do believe that at one point I was a part of this feel like they deserve something don't want to lose to people that they believe are less than and i think that it hurts magic in a really weird way one there's a segment of the magic community that doesn't want to go to places that they feel like they're going to lose and then two magic players get really upset when they lose to players that they feel like they're better than as somebody that has now played multiple competitive games that's just not true a lot of places. I actually looked into things like COD and StarCraft in addition to the Smash games that I've looked into. And that's not a reality. I think Mason's point of, are you being nice to this person? Let's pretend for a second, Abe, that you and I have lost to this person. I'm going to give you a real world example because I did this. I lost to Blue Red Heroic in standard years ago i got crushed because all of the blue spells offered three defense for multiple creatures and i could not beat it how do you think i reacted losing to the player i would hope that you kindly signed the slip and, uh, and moved there were on. no slips it was uh it was a win a box at oasis games our for- former sponsor but i was like hey just so you know, if your opponent plays these two cards, the thing that you're trying to do won't work. Like it, I, it was very much a do this thing differently in the future. I think that the, the question that Mason is asking, right, it, which is, are you being a good advocate for the game is the most important question. If you're not doing that, nobody wants to come play your store, man. If you are doing that and people still don't want to play, we have a different problem in your community, which is that, and I, I do believe this is a problem in Magic that doesn't exist in other games that i played, which is this, I want to play the place that gives me the best chance to win X number of packs. I think that is exclusive to magic. I think it's a bad mindset. I think if you're listening to this podcast and you have that mindset, I think that you should reconsider it. I think that it will make you a worse magic player. And you should stop. And that is the end of my thought. I think, Spencer, that you just hit a nail on the head that I'm going to talk (laughs) about here, which is that if this happens to you, Mikey, which it sounds like it is happening, Three people in our it Discord said it happened to them. To feel this way about, well, okay, if this is happening to you guys, you know, and you're being, you know, you're being good people, reasonable people. You're just showing up and playing your weekly event and playing Magic, and people are not having a good time because you're winning too much. I think you're playing with the wrong people for your goals. But when I came on the show the first time as a guest, the episode we did was about goals. 
And I shared this story that's, you know, incredibly true about feeling like testing with my friends who were now very committed people who I respect a lot. At that moment in time, testing with my friends for an RPTQ that we're all qualified for was not the right thing for my level of competition at the time and was frustrating. me. And so you know what I did? I went and found another place to prepare for the event and I succeeded because of it. And in a similar vein, it sounds like you need to evaluate your goals against what is going on in your LGS, right? If in your LGS, people are upset because you keep on playing blue-white control, calling you out, Mikey, I know it's been blue-white, you always play that deck. People don't like playing as you play in blue-white, and it's making the LGS worse. You have to decide whether you care about showing up and winning some store credit playing blue-white, or if maybe that is taking away from the ability for you to have this LGS that you like going to, have a scene, and you should maybe just find a way to play a different deck, or not even play their weeklies if it's taking away from people, so no. you can focus your time and energy Mikey, I'll buy you a deck. better. There's not really anything you can do about people who quit when they Mikey, lose. That's all Mikey, I'll buy you That's a deck. That's my opinion. Do you want to not play blue-white to learn another archetype? Mikey, DM me. I will buy you mono-red, mono-white, mono-green, whatever you want. I will just ship it to you. I don't think that it's conducive to what Abe is saying, for what it's worth, though. No, I, I think you have to decide whether how much you how you feel about your involvement with yeah. because you know if these people are, are really just acting like this about it i think that's really rude to you and disrespectful to you and just respect the game in general I, I don't i don't like when people act like that and if they're not having fun for them to put it on you personally is is pretty messed up. uh another way to get on the show and uh you know ask a question or something like that is to leave a comment over on youtube and it's the comment question section Travis asks, newer listener trying to be on the more competitive side. Thank you guys for all the content. Just one quick question. If I wanted to reference deck list to get a better visual of the conversation, where can I look? Thanks again for all the good vibes you put out there. Thank you, Travis, for the nice listen, the nice comment and listening to the podcast. Uh, the easiest place that I would suggest you go to is a place called MTG Goldfish. If you navigate to the MTG Goldfish page, which I'm doing right now to make sure I'm walking through this correctly, there is a bunch of tabs at the top. There's like one that says cards, and if you click the decks tab, you can click the popular decks slash metagame tab, which is the first one, and then you click standard, modern, pioneer, etc. And from there, you're going to be able to find the deck we're looking for. We will often try to use the same vernacular as Goldfish does. So like if you're looking for the modern episode, we're talking about is it Murktide, you're going to see the Murktide Regent deck. Uh, that is typically the best place to go. The other place you can go to get deck lists, if you're kind of curious where people find deck lists, you can, one of them is you can just Google MTGO and then 5-O, and you will find all of the competitive event listings recently, the first link. You just do that, and it's literally the Watsy thing. And You'll find deck lists. It's not the best place in the world, but if you're looking for just results in general, that might be a helpful place for you to look outside of Goldfish as well. I would just also suggest, if you're when we talk about you know a Power Rankings episode and we talk about specific deck lists, those are usually pulled from specific events that happened the week prior to that episode coming out. So I would go on Goldfish, you can go and search for events by date range and go find the event we're talking about, either a Magic Online challenge or a showcase event, which would be the challenge of the day that that occurred. That might take a little more Googling, but the Magic Online events are your best place to look at deck lists, I think. If you're looking for cutting edge things, Goldfish currently can be kind of bogged down by various local events that wind up being reported and scraped by their API. I To add to what Basin and Abe just said, uh, I responded to this on YouTube, and I told you to look at melee events, or specifically the formats that you were trying to look at. 
Additionally, I would say that if you're looking for deck lists, we have entered the new era of magic again, where we are now on RCQ Magic. This means wherever you can find RCQ data, you might want to look at it. There is a pretty huge value over understanding the difference. Again, this is really old Spencer vernacular. There's a huge difference in understanding what one of the best standard players right now in the last three weeks, Misplaced Ginger does at his standard event on MTGO, and what your local standard will look like. Your local standard is likely to look like an RCQ. And if you can find the data on that, whether it's on TCG Player, whether it's on MTGO, or, or sorry, Goldfish, that's probably important. That being said, there's a huge percentage of people... You're going to want to look at fire, fire shoes. Yeah, that's who I was going to mention that. The thing that you want to do is like look at what is happening on MTGO that people will adopt, and then what is fire shoes saying that people are winning with in their locals and then making your decision upon that it's kind of hard right because like this is something that happened this month specifically in utah people are like oh this didn't match the mdgo metagame or this didn't match the the arena metagame the latter the number one thing you can do is just consume what you can consume you're not in control of outside of that yeah one thing to remember too is that you're if you're listening to spencer and it doesn't make sense why things don't link up you probably don't actually understand what a metagame is and that's okay that's on us as content creators for not explaining it better and the metagame should not be the same week to week to week if the format is healthy and it should be moving so like if your rcq and modern is like all goblins and a merfolk, that's not this example. But if the RCQ is like, let's say, a bunch of hammer, and the previous weeks it's a bunch of is it decks winning, especially in that local area, that's an evolution and that is metagame moving forward and that is metagaming. Metagame doesn't mean, holistically mean the best things going on. Yeah, It is kind of, what is the information and using it. Utah right now has a bunch of amulet decks, a bunch of four color decks, and a bunch of Izadex in Modern. And then in Pioneer, it's a bunch of Mono Red. That's the Utah metagame, right? And then you have to decide, what do I do? So, like, me, as a person that owns Mono Blue in Pioneer Spirits, I don't want to go into a Pioneer RPTQ with Spirits against Mono Red. That just sounds miserable. You... As the person that says... Do some Cerulean <laughs> I have some. I did not have enough at the 1K that I played in, but I do have some now. It's an ebb and flow, right? Like, this, this question is hard, but, like, as a new listener, and you're wondering about that competitive side, it is what Mason said, right? Like, it's, it's a little nebulous, but also it is contextualized into what you're trying to do. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the show. You're going to make sure to check out the rest of the CCMTG network. That is, of course, common knowledge, the All Popper podcast all the time. Popper is getting double masters. It's here. The time is now. New cards, new deck, new exciting stuff. So make sure to check 
all of that out, including their set review on the topic. And you also want to check out Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. We're back releasing new episodes on Drafting Archetypes. So if you've been missing Sam, the show's back. Make sure to recheck out that feed. I know sometimes it can get easy to forget it when it's been gone for a couple weeks, but we're back full swinging over there. Check out that show as well. Make sure to like and subscribe on all the various platforms that we have here, you know, Spotify, YouTube, those sort of things. They really help and share with their friends. If you want to support the show, we can't do it on a way like Patreon or something like that if you think it will help them. Spencer, where can someone find you if they're looking for you? I'm going to be doing content for the uh, Constructive Criticism Open where you can win this trophy that if you're watching on YouTube, I'm I'm like loving. It's very pretty. Mason, what would you drink out of this? You don't get a trophy for your win. What would you drink out of this one? Uh, orange juice? Apple juice? I don't know. Water. Mason would drink water out of this. It's like a, it might mess this up, but uh, you can find me uh, doing commentary for our sponsor, Game Grid, as well as the CCMG Opens, as well as doing my other podcasts, which are the bi-weekly uh, Need to Nerd podcast, where we talk about nerd stuff, and the monthly Smash Through podcast, where we talk about being always improving in Smash Brothers. What about you, Abe? Oh, uh, yeah. People can find me at twitter.com slash more nothings. I am still doing hammer coaching, but I'm actually going to be expanding my coaching offerings to include the Pioneer format and some swaths of modern format. I've been putting in a lot of time uh, recently in Pioneer to make sure I am up to date for the RCQs. And I figure now that I have more than one area where I feel like I'm really at, at an expert level right now, I would love to take on some uh, some people who I feel like I can really help. So if you're someone who that feels like, if, you wanna, if you're want, if you interested, slide me a DM on Twitter and we can we can see what works. Uh, how about you, Mason? You can find me each and every week here on the Constructivism Podcast. You can also find me over at Card Kingdom every Thursday for a new article. This week it's all about Pioneer and why you're losing at it. You also want to check me out on twitch.tv slash Clark, where I'm trying to get about two streams in a week, you know, but we're doing the best we can because I've been doing so much coaching recently. Uh, I am pretty full, but if you're really looking into coaching, there are some spots coming up in the coming weeks where we can maybe pencil ahead. If you're looking to message me, you can check out my Twitter and DM me there. My Twitter also has my email, which is masoneclark at gmail.com. Feel free to send me an email. I had one of you do that, and it was a great way to get in touch with me and then be able to sort of plan out the schedule for coaching and stuff like that and go forward. I am here to help you with all your general stuff, but of course can go over more specific things like money pile, et cetera, along those lines. And that will do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. We'll see y'all next week for another episode of CCMTG.